you guys ever been in a situation where you know you ought to feel something and you're not and everyone else seems to be on the right page, the right emotional wavelength and you're totally not? So like a tragedy happens and other people are just crying and you're like secretly wondering what's wrong with you because you're not feeling that bad. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, I, I remember there was times in my life where I would go to uh, like an accountability group with men and different guys are sharing and often people would confess a struggle with lust and you'd have a guy share um, at times in tears, just heartbroken about his falling that week. And then I'm like, you know, I fall, fell too that week, and I don't feel like you feel. I'm not responding, and I'm wondering, what's wrong with me? And, and, and to guard myself, typically I'd say, man, he's just very emotional. Very, something's probably wrong with him. That, that's, the, that's the thing, you know? Or, or times where recently I remember I was extremely sad just a, a week ago, and I, and I try to take stock. I was like, this day is actually fantastic. Like, objectively, it's very good. Like, my life is good. And yet, I felt sad. So sometimes, as you guys know, I'm just trying to build this framework that I think all of us have experienced regularly, is that our emotions aren't always in check with reality. There's a lagging behind at times. Um, I remember one time, is this on? I don't think it's on. Um, I remember one time I was, there it is. Wow, now I'm. I have power. I remember one time I was at this um, sermon, um, and he's preaching on hell and what awaits people who reject Jesus and who don't know the hope that we have. And I lived with eight guys in, a, in, a, in an apartment, and we drove home that day quiet. And I remember in different rooms, I'd walk through the hallways, guys would just be quietly weeping or just staring off into space, not saying a word. And, you know, that night I wasn't very moved. And I sat there and I was like, what's wrong with me? And I think all of us know those times, and maybe you feel it right now. Maybe there's a song. There's a song from the 90s or maybe early 2000s. You guys know this one? Um, I, I'm desperate for you. You guys know that song? I'm not going to try to sing it right now. Have you guys ever been like singing and you're like, oh, but I'm not. I'm not, right? Or someone's like, man, God is so good. And you're like, I'm not feeling that right now. So, so here's the question, the, the tension I want you to feel, is what do you do when you feel wrongly? <laughs> what, what do you do when your feelings are not in step with reality? Last week, Pastor Ross, preaching on Simeon and the birth of Jesus, talks about how he, he confessed that, man, I don't long for Jesus' return as much as I ought to. He was convicted by that. And I think a lot of us were like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. But then what do you do from there? Where do you go from there? How do you get your heart calibrated and in step with what reality is? And so that's what this whole message is going to be connected to. We're going to be looking at Simeon quickly um, and overviewing from last week and then going to Anna. And looking at these two lives who had a singular focus around an obsession. They were obsessed with one main thing. And this main thing, really better said person, ordered their whole life. See, when you have a great longing... It orders all your lesser longings. Your whole life starts to become wrapped around that magnificent obsession that you have. And so we're going to look at the life of Anna and Simeon and then look at some principles for ourselves. And if you're not a Christian here, 
I'm so glad you're here. It takes a lot of boldness to come here. I wouldn't go to a Buddhist temple. That would feel weird and scary. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we're so glad you're here. And, and there's something for you in this talk too. So if you haven't turned to Luke chapter 2, um, that's where we're at, Luke 2, 25. We're going to start with Simeon and we're going to kind of sprint through real quick. I want to remind you what's going on right here. Um, Simeon, remember, is this old man who's just faithful. The text said he's righteous and devout. He loves the things of God. And he happens to be in the temple the day that Jesus is being dedicated as a baby. And I'm, I'm not going to read the verses exactly, but what happens is as Jesus is being dedicated at the temple, the Holy Spirit, the text says the Holy Spirit was upon um, Simeon. And he knows, he knows that this is the son. This is the one whom we've been looking for. This is the one who's the answer to all of our ills and all the brokenness of the world. And I don't know how he does it, but he, he comes up and sweeps in and takes the baby out of their hands and just starts thanking God and praising God. Just Mufasa style, just going crazy about this, this kid. And he says something very interesting. We're going to look at verse 25. He says that he was waiting, the text says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, we're going to take a moment to talk about the consolation of Israel because I think it's a complicated term, but is quite simple, but significant to understand this passage. What does the consolation of Israel sound? That's a very religious-y sounding sentence. Well, as Ross taught last week, consolation is the same word for comfort. Comfort. So the, then the question should come, what do they need comforting from? What does Israel need comforting from? A lot of things. A lot of things. But the context here is connected to Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. Now, if you know the book of Isaiah from 40, it shifts the tone to very hopeful. And for, from 40 to 66, it's chapter after chapter of the beauty that this messianic figure is going to bring. The new age that's going to come. Now, remember the original context Isaiah was written to. These people were suffering. They, their, their king had his eyes gouged out. Their family were slaughtered in front of them. They were uprooted from their homes. Their, their temple was destroyed. I mean, I mean, talk about every fundamental thing that uh, people could put their hope in. It was absolutely stripped with, from them. And now they're in Babylon, rotting away there, and they have these promises that in 70 years they're going to be returned back to their home. Okay, so that's the context. And so they're, they're wondering, they're wondering, is God going to be faithful to his promises? Uh, did we go too far? Will he forgive us? And so look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. We looked at it last, we're going to look at it again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Why, why are they being comforted now? And, and listen to this word, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Look, look at the tenderness of God's heart and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now we're not gonna spend the time that this passage deserves, but what you can understand is that Israel right here with that promise is experienced a total salvation. See, when we think about in the West salvation, we think about, hey, how do you have peace with God? How do you get to go to heaven? But the, but the um, Eastern and specifically the Jewish mindset of salvation was more than that. It wasn't not that, but it was more than that. And so basically what Isaiah is speaking about and that Simeon picks off of is this total salvation that is vertical, so peace with God, horizontal, 
So now peace with neighbor, peace with other nations, there's peace in the land and also inward. Because remember, throughout the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament before, there's this reoccurring theme that their hearts have not been circumcised. And if you don't know what that means, in other words, their hearts were hard. And no matter what wasn't going on, no matter what king was there, their, their hearts would just be prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as the, the famous hymn says. Their hearts would just keep running back to idols no matter what, and so God needed to transform them. And so we needed a salvation that was vertical, horizontal, and inward. And so Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, even though the people of God have returned from Babylon, they still feel like they're in Babylon. Because you remember who's ruling Jer Jerusalem right now at this point? The Jews, right, not the Jews, the Romans. And the Romans put this puppet king who's not really even a Jew over them. And they have a temple, but remember the temple's not like what it used to be. Remember what happened in Ezekiel about the temple. What left? The most important thing about the temple, what left? Yeah, the presence left, the Shekinah, this hypersensitive, uh, hyper-concentrated presence, manifest presence of God that was in the temple left. And so now they got this shell of a temple that was just a memorial of what, of days past. And so even though Israel is, is back in their promised land, it's not like it was supposed to be. And so they still feel like they're in exile. So Simeon with other faithful Jews are longing for the day that the messianic figure would come and make all things new. Okay? And so, so the reason why I'm spending so much time on this consolation Israel is because when you think about the return of Jesus or the return of the Messiah, you don't think just merely that, oh, finally, no more sin. Absolutely, we want that. But we're talking no more cancer, no more, no more death, no more depression, no more sadness, everything. He comes with everything. And, and if you're not a Christian here and you're not trusting Jesus, you'll get none of those things you don't have vertical you don't have reconciliation with god you don't have peace with god you won't have peace in your body peace in your life peace in your heart you'll have nothing but the great news is that god at great cost to himself made a way so you could have peace in every way possible and that is the gospel that's the good news is that god took all the bad news that should be for you and me and he took it upon himself who does that? And so if you want to learn more about this absurd, amazing, gracious God who dies for enemies to give them peace, we want to tell you more about him. So come talk with us. And so for us today, even though Jesus has come, we still are like Israel in Simeon's time, waiting for the final redemption, the final return we're still kind of living in exile. Because even though we are forgiven of our sins and we have peace with God, we still have to fight sin. We still have to fight our bodies that are breaking down all the time. We have to fight everything from bad traffic to early deaths. And so we, like Simeon, are in a similar place longing for the return. And so now let's look at verse 36, okay? So I, I try to sprint through that quickly. If you want more, you can go into... Pastor Ross's sermon last week. So let's look at Anna, introducing Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
Now, there's a lot here that I, I want to nerd out, but I'm going to nerd out just a little bit, but not too much, right? Um, it, it's really interesting. She's a faithful Jew, and she's from the tribe of Asher, and her dad is named Phanuel, which if you know Hebrew, that's bringing together Panim face and El, which is an abbreviation of God. So before the face of God is her dad's name. Isn't that sweet? There you go. If you want to name uh, a son that, Phanuel. Very, very powerful. And, and the reason why that's interesting is because she lived before the face of God. She was a prophetess and she lived before him in the temple. Let me, let me talk about how extraordinary this woman is. If, if she was like most women of her time, she got married around 12 to 14 years old. So then she was married for about seven years. And at the age of about 20-ish, she lost her husband. We don't know how, but she lost her husband. And you know what? Back then, they had no security safety net like we do today. If you, ha- you, if you were a woman and you lost a husband, your only option was to get remarried or to throw yourself at the mercy of beggars or put yourself into prostitution. Or hopefully you had a child who was old enough to take care of you. Now, the text doesn't say what we have, so we don't want to over-speculate and read into it to fit the sermon's needs. But we know that she could have easily, at her age, remarried. And she didn't. She threw herself at the mercy of the Lord and gave herself to service. Now, the text here in Greek is a little tricky. It could mean that she was there for 84 years or that she died when she was 84. So either she was 84 or 105. It's not clear, which is nuts. But we're talking over 60 years of praying and fasting and not leaving the temple. And can I be honest with you? That sounds so boring. But like I said before, when you have a obsession, when you have a longing, it dictates your whole entire life. Your whole life gets rearranged over that longing. And so there's two ways that we can misread this passage. One is that we can overread into it and say, well, the Bible says this, so that's where it had to be. So you have this impression that she never actually ate ever in 60 years. Or that she never stopped praying and fasting. Or she never left the temple. The reality is, is somewhere in between where she actually did leave the temple at times. But this, this language of night and day it is just, if you do a word study throughout the scriptures, it's, it's just, it symbolizes this picture of constancy, of steadfastness, of singularity. And she... She didn't, she wasn't like immortal. She, she didn't, she ate. But it was a lifestyle of perpetually longing and fasting and praying. Now, the, the, the thing that we need to make sure we do is not just be like, oh yeah, that's great, 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 Anna, and read on. Because this is only two, three verses, right? And, and not just be amazed at the reality that this woman just gave herself for decades to prayer and fasting. And that God was pleased by that. The, the way the narrator speaks of this, speaks of it in a very positive light, which is representing God's heart, that he was delighted in that. When I first read this passage, I wondered if she was fasting and praying because of her husband's death. And I, pro- I, mean, I bet she did. Initially, she was driven into such mourning and brokenness over the loss of her, the early loss of her husband. But if you see the end of her life, what was her response when she meets baby Jesus? It's thanksgiving and sharing with others. I, I think that initially she started off 
where it was because of her husband. But over time, like God often does, he takes tragedies and he takes ashes and turns them to beauty. And her heart came to the point where she said, I don't want anyone to ever die again. Let alone my husband. I want no one to experience what I experienced before. So, so Messiah come. Because when the Messiah comes, no one will ever die. So it went from uh, personal consolation to then to magnify to greater national consolation she desired. Are you tracking with me? Her heart started to expand and increase in its love and its capacity. And so no longer was it like, oh, Jesus, or oh, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, I want you to help me. She said, oh, Lord, I'm a mess and everyone else is a mess. We need you to come and return and make all things right. And that's often what God does. He takes a tragedy and it starts to grow into greater intimacy with him. Now we're going to go back to prayer and fasting, but I want to make a note on verse 38. I know we just touched on it. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now this word redemption of Jerusalem, this phrase is actually parallel with this consolation of Israel. It's, it's almost identical. And so, so you can take away a couple of things here. Well, first, this phrase, giving thanks to God and speaking to them, I'm going to go nerd mode again, but it's, it's important. This is in the imperfect tense, okay? And the reason why that's important is because what it's telling us is that she continually did it. So what I'm pushing against is this idea that she gets baby Jesus, and she's like, glory to God, and then she just kind of goes on her merry way. But what she did is she, she encountered the living Christ and then she went on for the rest of her days, continually giving thanks, continually sharing with others about Jesus. Anna was one of the first evangelists. It's really beautiful. But also something to note is that they're waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She actually didn't just go to everybody. She went to specifically, at, the, at least in this context of this text, of those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, so what that tells me is that there was a group of people who are longing for this along with her. And so she was a spokesperson to them, saying, hey, hey, you know the one we've been looking for? He's here, he's here, he's here. Can you imagine what it was like for Simeon and Anna? You know, I, I can pray for something for a couple of days and a week and then give up because I'm discouraged that God didn't answer me. And we're talking decades, decades of seeking after God. Can you imagine an answered prayer that you've been waiting for 60 years for? 60 years? I get discouraged when God doesn't answer me in a day sometimes. 60 years of seeking his face for this answer and seeing Jesus, seeing his face. I wonder what his face looked like. I wonder what baby Jesus was like. And they get to encounter him. I can't imagine the joy. This is a lesson for us to persevere in prayer and waiting on God's timing. Now, I want to make a note about Simeon and Anna, about redeeming retirement. In our culture, the pinnacle of life for many, after your, your, your years of taking over the world, is to sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be married, and retire. Where now, you can do everything that you could never do before. You can relax, you can have it good. And I just love how Simeon and Anna didn't have that mindset. They spent the rest of their days. And in fact, in many cases, if you redeem your retirement, retirement years can actually be the most fruitful years of a Christian. And they gave themselves. So a so couple of things. 
let's be Simeons and Annas when we get older. And also, can the Lord send us more Simeon and Annas? Can you pray for that? We could use some gray hair here. I'm not going to look at the people who have gray hair and with puppy dog eyes trying to manipulate them. But we could use Simeon's in on us. I want to be like Simeon and Anna. Now let's, let's bring his home. How shall we now live in all, light of all this? If you're here, I'm assuming that most of you, and I know majority of you, love Jesus. You're a professing Christian, professing Christian, which means that you are saying that Jesus is your everything. You want him to be your everything. You want him to be the most important person in your world. But I want to speak to you who say that, like me, and yet say, but I don't really love him that much right now. Maybe you can think about a time in your life where you had more passion for Jesus. And when we say, hey, come Lord Jesus, Jesus is coming, you're like, yay, because you know that's the right answer and the right response. But in your heart, you're like, I don't really care that much. So what do you do when you're in that place where you're stuck, where your heart, as Psalm 119 says, is unfeeling as fat? That you just don't love Jesus as much as you want to. There's great news for you. There's great, great news for you. Let's go back to Simeon in verse 29. I didn't read this earlier, but I want to go to it because I think this is important, talking about our longings. After he holds Jesus and realizes who he is, he is finally satisfied and complete. And the greatest bucket list item on his bucket list is crossed off, and he can now die. The greatest longing of his heart is met. Look at verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I wonder how many of us could say that. That if we would just see Jesus, we said, I can die now. That's my one thing. At the top of your bucket list is I want to see his face. I want to hold him. I want to be with Jesus. The reality is a lot of us, our bucket list is, has a lot more to do with what the world has. Accomplishments and career. Maybe finally get married. God, if I could finally get married and have sex, then you can come, Jesus. Right? I know what that's like. If it's not the second coming at the top of your bucket list to know him and to be with him, something is off. And church, something's off with me because it's often not my top. And if I'm honest, it's probably not my top three often. Let me share another passage with you. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul is speaking. He says this, Henceforth, there is a laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Can I just ask you a simple, honest question that I hope that you ask yourself? Do you love his appearing? Do you love his appearing? Do you want Jesus to come more than anything else? I want to love his appearing. I want to be like those when Jesus comes. I'm saying, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've been looking. I don't want to be like the Christians who said, oh, no. Oh, no. I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to live for you with all my heart. I don't want to have any regrets that day. I don't want to be like the watchmen who are sleeping when he comes. So what do you do if you don't want to? love him what, what if you what do you do when you don't love him like this and you want to how do you wake in your heart when it's sleeping and you feel stuck so here here are two things first just tell him 
he already knows. Just tell him, I don't love you that much right now. Or I don't love you like I used to. Or I don't love you more than I love my blank. He already knows, and he's eager with his arms open to receive you. Just tell him, God, I don't love you like I do. I I should. But I want to. And if you want to, there's hope. If you don't want to, that, that's a very dark place to be, and I would love to pray with you. But, but if you're in a place where you're saying, God, I don't love you like I ought to, but I want to love you as I ought to, then God can meet you there. And from that place of humility, let's go to the next step. And this is kind of counterintuitive to most people, and it's been counterintuitive to me. And I want to just say at the forefront, before I get into this, I have been a hypocrite in this area of my life. The second step is fasting. This, this is the the bad word in Christian disciplines that people like to ignore because no one likes it. Who likes fasting? Who likes not eating? It's terribly hard. But I want to call you to embrace not just a season of fasting, but a lifestyle of fasting. And I want to be clear, and I'm going to get to more nuts and bolts of fasting. We'll do that in the midweek podcast too. But fasting is not for the super spiritual. It's for those who know they're not. It's for those who know they don't have their act together. Fasting is what I do when I know I'm not as I ought to be. So it's not a point of pride. Oh, look at you trying to think you're all great fasting. I'm like, no, I mean, I'm not great. That's why I'm fasting. You see, that it's a, it's a paradigm shift. See, fasting can often be a legalistic checklist of saying, man, I fast twice a week. I, I tithe of my mint, cumin, and dill, and all, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm quoting the, the, the Pharisees, right? We can have this very Pharisaical mindset, but actually fasting is a sign of your desperation. A fasting of how much you don't get it, how much you need more of God. Let me take you to another passage, Luke 5. We're going to be preaching on this, but we're actually going to be skipping on it when we actually preach it. So this actually works nice. So Luke 5, if you have our Bible, verse 33. <clears throat> and just in the context, the, the previous section, the, uh, the, the Pharisees are pushing against Jesus and his authority and who he is. And verse 33, they say to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Remember, real quick, what was Jesus often accused of? Eating and drinking. He was a glutton, friend of sinners. He partied well. Jesus, if you read the Gospels carefully, he was a guy who had a good time with people. And they're like, what the deal, Jesus? You're not like the conservative Jews and Pharisees of our days and rabbis. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. Okay, what's going on here? Well, yesterday, we, some of us were able to celebrate Joel and Carly's wedding. And if, if, if Joel would all, all of a sudden, or sorry, let's be more consistent. If Carly would all of a sudden break down and cry, Joel, Joel, where are you? And Joel's like, I'm right here. And she keeps whining and, and crying and, not whining, wailing and crying. Joel! It's like, he's, I'm right here, honey. I'm right here. You don't need to more. You can celebrate. I'm here. And so yesterday was fe- fitting for us to feast. But there will be a day, Jesus says, that I'm actually going to be leaving. And in those days, God's people will fast. They will mourn and long as lovesick people longing to be reunited with their bridegroom. See, this is... This is this bridegroom fast that I want to call all of you to. See, the Christian life 
in the new covenant, the new covenant calls us into a rhythm of feasting and fasting. We feast at the Lord's table. I mean, this is not really what we need. We want, a fe- we want an actual meal every week. But we feast saying that and declaring that he's come and he's made all things new. He started the process of changing us. And then we fast because it's still not completed. Does that make sense? Until he comes, we're in this weird in-between stage, this overlap of ages where he's come, but he's not fully here reigning on the earth. There's still cancer and brokenness and sex trafficking and all the kind of ills of this world. And we're saying, it's not okay, you're not here. One commentator says that fasting is a form of protest. I'm protesting until he comes back. Things are not right. Now, there are a lot of different fasts in the Bible. I don't have time to get into them, but you got, you know, fasting like in Purim with Esther with all the Jews about to get executed. Uh, You got fasting for decisions. You got lots of different fasts. But this one that I think Jesus is inviting us, notice the word invite, not commanding. There is no command for fasting in the New Testament. But it is assumed. Let me talk about that. Here are a couple nuts and bolts. Let me clarify a few things. Fasting is a voluntary it's inv- invited into, but it's not something you earn favor with. It is because you already have favor with God. It's because you're already accepted by God. God can then call you to fast. That's very important. You are already accepted, and out of that acceptance, you are living into these realities, these habits, these disciplines, not to get it. God is not at all more in love, love you more or accepts you more if you fast. Get that out of your mind if that is going to be, if you have a sensitive conscience and you feel like if I only fast, then God will truly forgive me. And then when God will truly be pleased and love me. That's garbage theology. You are accepted and you can't add anything more than what Jesus has done for you and what he is for you. Okay, so from, with that caveat, and very important caveat away, fasting is not commanded, but it is assumed. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Christianity 101 in many ways, he just assumes it. Hey, when you fast, don't do it this way. Do it this way. He's just assuming this is going to be the kind of pattern in the, the inclination of the heart of people who are lovesick for their bridegroom. He's assuming, hey, I'm talking to Christians here. Your bridegroom is far away and not with you. He's kind of with you, but he's not. Aren't you sick? See, because here's the thing. When you lose a loved one, typically you don't do what? Eat. You don't feast. When you lose a loved one, hey, you want to eat some food? I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't even eat, right? Something about the appetite is stripped when you are longing to be reunited with someone you love, when your heart is lovesick. And so the bridegroom fast is for those who are lovesick for Jesus to return. But check this out. This is very important if you're checking out at all. The bridegroom fast is for those who don't long for him and want to. It helps you get in that place. If you're not lovesick for you to be reunited with Jesus for him to come, this is a great place to start to help get your heart there. It helps cultivate. Here, here's the kind of the main point if you're taking notes. Right? Fasting cultivates space and longing, or no, sorry, space and feeling for what matters most. Fasting cultivates, doesn't guarantee, but it cultivates space and feeling for what matters most. Now, one more final caveat. And we're going to drive home some other points. Fasting in the Bible is always about food. And I, I make the mistake regularly saying like, oh, I'm fasting this or fasting that. And that's fine. There's a lot of benefits of 
of abstaining from Netflix or abstaining from a mirror fast. You know, some gals are like, I'm not going to look in the mirror for 30 days. There's a lot of benefits there, and they overlap here. But strictly speaking, fasting is food. And, and I want to call you to embrace regular fasting of food at some level. That could be one meal a week. It could be 10 meals a week. I don't know. Don't do 10 meals a week. You can't sustain that long term. Wait, can you? Three? Yeah, you could do that. What, what I'm saying is that embrace food fasting. And the reason why there's something about food, and I'm going to talk about that, that does something uniquely. So here are three benefits of the bridegroom fast. There's way more, but here are three that I want to quickly highlight. One, it awakens us to reality. There is reality, there, reality right now, friends, is that we're in a war. But sometimes we forget we're in a war, right? Reality is that Jesus is not here with us, our bridegroom has been taken away, and we want him back. But sometimes we don't think about that. Reality is that every day we need Jesus. Reality is that this world is broken and there's billions on their way to hell. And so what fasting does is it helps you align yourself with the heart of God, with the agenda of God, and realize the very things that our flesh tries to avoid. And so when you fast, you feel the weakness of your body. You feel the, the sense of ache. Right now I'm fasting because I'm preaching a sermon. I was like, man, I got to fast when I'm preaching a sermon, right? So, so like you feel the hunger pain. You're like, oh, things are not right. I got a headache because of my lack of caffeine today, right? I'm just feeling all this stuff. And it reminds me, the world is not as it ought to be. And it, it wakens my heart to the reality. It helps tune in to the very things that we try to avoid. Because you know what? Ignorance is bliss. And a lot of times we want to avoid those things and those feelings. Turn off the TV. I don't want to hear another thing about the news. And we, we hide ourselves. And what fasting does, it tunes our heart to reality. Number two is connected to it. But it also it increases our longing and dependency for Jesus. See, Right now, I could really use cheeseburger and milkshake. Amen. But I want Jesus more. And as the days go on, I'm, I'm going to break the fast later with Papa John's, but if the, if the days went on, every single time, I feel that pang in my heart. Oh, cheeseburger. Oh, whatever it is. I can say, but God, I want you more. I want that, but I want you more. And so what fasting does, it helps cultivate hunger, especially if your hunger has gotten dull. It, it sharpens the hunger pangs. And so as much as I want to eat right now, and as weak as I feel, I say, God, I want you more. I want you more. I want you more than I know, and I want you more than I, I, I want. More than that. And it, and it cultivates this greater dependence on God because the reality is when you fast, you're weak. If I get up too fast, I get lightheaded. I can't do all the normal things, you know? And I feel weak. I acutely, I feel my weakness. But guess what? I'm already weak. I'm already weak. I just forget it a lot. Right? When I wake up and I skip time with Jesus, that shows me how self-sufficient I am. I think, oh, I don't need to spend time with Jesus. I'm good. I'm good. It doesn't matter that I'm marked and I, I got targets on my back from the evil one. I'm good, right? So fasting reminds me how much I need Jesus and it builds that dependency. And this is super important. The more you fast on a regular basis, it, it starts inclining your attitudes of heart and, your, and it gets you cultivated in a way so that when the big trials of life come, you've already trained your heart. 
You've already trained your heart to run to Jesus when you're feeling broken and sick and weak so that when the actual call comes that is the worst call of your life about the person being de- dead or you getting cancer or whatever it happens, you, hey, it's all been practiced. I've already done this. I'm used to jo- drawing north towards Jesus in this tragedy. My heart is used to r- throwing itself at his mercy. Third, fasting cultivates space for more of Jesus. So just on a very practical level, if you don't eat, you have some more time. And if you're like a really slow eater, you have even more time. And if you think about food all the time, you have even more time. It gives you more time to replace. Now this is very, very important. Throughout the Bible, it's always important to remember whenever God says to abstain, he always wants you to replace. Take off and put on. When you look at Anna, she's fasting and what? Praying. These are Siamese twins that if you separate, they die. You have to have them together. Fasting and praying. I I went through seasons of life where I fasted twice a week. And I found myself in those seasons not praying a lot. And just feeling very spiritual. Because I was suffering for Jesus. And I missed out on all the spiritual benefit in life. Because I wasn't praying. And spending time in God's word and meditating and abiding with him. It cultivates space. This is kind of a sub point. But fasting maybe more than any other spiritual discipline or habit of grace reveals your idols. It reveals the things that you're dependent on. Feels the things that are idols and have control over you. And it just exposes them. So you say, oh, I don't have an issue with blank. Well, then just don't do it for three months. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can stop anytime I want. Whatever it is, whether it's a show, a game, a, a relationship, a career, fasting starts to expose all this junk inside, and you can bring it to Jesus. You'll be more irritable. You'll have all these things come out, and you can bring them to Jesus. It's not like the fasting made these things. It's just exposing these things. And regularly fasting is letting all this stuff out so it doesn't brood under the surface and fester. So Fasting cultivates space and feeling for what matters most. So, so this January, we're calling all of our members to fast all of January, different things, what, you know, or abstain from different things if you want to be biblically accurate, whether that's no Netflix or social media for an entire month. I know some people abstain from wine for the entire month just to make sure their heart is in the right place and wine doesn't have a hold over them. I challenge you to embrace this lifestyle, not just in January, but beyond, but January to be a really powerful way as a community that we can hold each other accountable, encourage each other, inspire one another so that we can embrace this as a long-term habit. And January 5th, that night after this Lord's Supper till the 11th, I think, we'll break the Lord's Supper together uh, as a meal in the lobby. I invite you to join us. And, and I, at the same time, I want to remind you that Jesus already loves you. And he's pleased with you. And you're not earning anything by doing this. And if you fall off a day or two in, God's not shaming you. This is all voluntary. It's an invitation for you to have more of him. It's not a command. And so maybe you, you'll fast every lunch and spend that time in the Word. Or you can come to the church building here and pray with us. We'll have it open for two hours every day during lunchtime. 
in just a, a week where you're just seeking after God's face harder and kind of restarting your heart. If you find your heart is kind of needing defibrillation, spiritual defibrillation, this is a good week to kind of waken your heart up. If, if you're in here and saying, Sam, I have loved God more in the past than I do now. This is an invitation for you to get back and go further. God wants more of you and wants you to have more of him. Here are three focuses that I want us to have in front of us during this fast, all throughout January and also through that specific week. Oh, wait, wait, I need to clarify something. Joanna's like, Sam, make sure you clarify this. When we, when we say water fast, that doesn't mean we're fasting from water, okay? Theo has this great story about his small group fasting, and like a couple of days in, a guy's like, guys, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how you're doing this. And he's like, I, I'm so thirsty. And they're like, you haven't been drinking? <laughs> so, so we're going to drink water, unless Angel tells you not to. Um, but we're, we're going to abstain from food. But maybe that looks like a Daniel fast. There, there's a lot of things. We're going to get to that in the midweek podcast. I'm not going to cover all the different things, but I want to clarify that. So here are three focuses I want to call you to. One, to focus on increased intimacy and renewal with Jesus. Just, oh, God, I want to love you more than I do. And number two, salvation for an unbelieving friend or family member. That just every day you're going to just just pound like Luke 18, like a persistent window, just pounding day and night. Lord, save blank. Save them. Save them. Open up doors. And number three, breakthrough in a personal area. Maybe your marriage feels stuck. It's not, yeah, and you just need God to come through and break through with greater intimacy and joy in your marriage. Maybe you need breakthrough in a financial situation. And I'm not, I'm not saying name it and claim it kind of thing, but God wants to meet you in your finances. And maybe you're stuck in, in debt or in a bad job situation. You're, you're praying for breakthrough. Um, maybe it's a sin or addiction that you just can't break. And it keeps coming back to you. And you could just be going after God's heart, after the throne room. God, break this off of me. Help me love you more than I love blank. Church, what if our whole church community, our whole family gave ourselves to this regularly? Getting our longings in check and making sure our greatest longing, Jesus, is first and foremost. And our longing for him would dictate all our other longings. Imagine the kind of breakthrough we would regularly have. Imagine the amount of intimacy that we'll have with Jesus. The ima- imagine the breakthrough and breaking off of addictions and sin. Uh, imagine how much more we'd love other people, especially when they don't love us. Imagine how much more sensitive we would have toward, be towards sin. Imagine the amount of more boldness God would give us for the loss and for his works. Imagine how many more unbelievers we would be, be able to baptize this next year, I, I'm praying, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm praying for 30 baptisms in 2020. And, I, and how much more empowered disciple making we'll have. Let me close with this. Dear church, Christ has come and he will come again. Do you want him? I want him, but I don't want him as much as I want to. And so the fasting is calling me to. And when he comes, he's going to make all things right. And so church, you can long to get married because you're lonely and single. But you could also long for the one who's going to end all loneliness. You can long for your body to be repaired because it's under illness or injury. And you can also long for the one who's going to make sure that there's no more sickness or death ever again. 
you could long for people to accept you and finally for you to feel safe and secure, or you can long for the one who's going to end all insecurity and bring full acceptance as we see his face. See, the, the greatest longing of our heart is found in Jesus, and everything else that we long for is connected to him. And so let, let January be a month where we find him as our everything. And so would you just say this with me? I'm going to say the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. Would you say, come, Lord Jesus? One more time. Come, Lord Jesus.